0: Good morning. Good morning. Malachi. Malachi chapter 2. So open your Bible, turn to Malachi chapter 2. As we get there, I actually want to start in a passage in the New Testament um, in Ephesians and set up a question. And so um, I wasn't planning to do this first part, but this, the psalm we just sang made me think about this. And so I, I want to reorient the way we're going to open just a little bit. So the song that we just sang, and I'm, some, you get on the internet and blogosphere and Twitter and all that stuff, a lot of people um, struggle with that song, um, particularly the expression reckless in the song. So before we go into Malachi, this is going to set us up for what's happening in Malachi. I want us to think about that concept of God's love. So if you would hold, hold your position in Malachi 2, we're going to start in Ephesians, one of my favorite books in the New Testament. And uh, look at a particular passage right here in Ephesians chapter 1. Here's the question we're asking. What does God's love look like? What does God's love feel like? How overwhelming is God's love? How reckless is God's love? How good is God's love? Who all does God love? Lots of interesting questions connected with this idea of God's love. So we're going to just dive in for a moment. And and think about that question from a holistic perspective of all of Scripture. Because we opened up Malachi, if you remember, the very first statement, the very first idea in Malachi was God saying, Jacob I loved, but what did God do with Esau? Hated. So Jacob I loved, and Esau I hated. So we're going to see that same idea both in the New Testament and in the Old, but I want to pull out this. This verse in Ephesians chapter 1, I'm going to pick up in verse 3. Um, we're, we're headed down to verse 8, but we got to, it's all one sentence in Greek, and so I want you to see what's going on. So it starts off saying, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So what is every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places? So heavenly places is Paul's way of saying kind of in the spirit realm, and maybe a second dimension, to use modern lingo, we could say in the, in the spirit realm, God has blessed us in every way imaginable. He's going to give us three categories of blessing. We're not going to go through them all for this morning, but the categories fall under God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So this is a Trinitarian blessing. He's going to walk through each member of the Trinity and how each member of the Trinity blesses us. So let's just see first. Um, this, the first one's the Father. So verse 4, even as He, that's the Father, chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. Now, this topic gets a lot of frustration. It causes a lot of controversy. But the, the fact of the matter is it says this, that God chose us when? Before the foundation of the world. What's the object of the word chose? Us, very good. Yes, people get a grammar. The object there is us, not how. He chose us, he chose people before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him. So, what's the point of being chosen by God before the foundation of the world that he would make us holy, set apart, and blameless in front of him? And then in love, so is this a loving action of God? Yes, that's the point. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to his purpose, the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace. So he has planned before the ages began to make us holy and blameless before him in love. This is his work. That is God's love at work. This has been the plan From the beginning to do this work, to love us, to adopt us into his family. Now, how does he do that? That's where we pick up the end of verse 6, beginning of 7. With which he has blessed us in the beloved. Now, I have a capital B, beloved, in my translation. That's a hint that we're talking about who when we say the beloved. This is Jesus, his son. So this is going to happen through the work of the beloved son. In him, we have redemption. Through his blood. So how do we receive redemption in Christ? Specifically, it's through what thing itself? Ultimately, right here we're talking about blood. The blood itself is what allows us to be redeemed. The shedding of Christ's blood. It was poured out for us. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Riches of his grace. So we get... A measure of Christ's blood based on the riches of his grace. So, how much grace does God give you? That's the question we're at right now. How much grace does God give you? Oh, all right. So, think about it like this you have a certain list of sins held against you, right? We see this in Colossians chapter 2 that there's a certificate of debt against you, a list, so to speak, of everything. You have ever in all of your life, past, present, future, mind, body, soul, everything you've ever done, every way you have fallen short of the glory of God is on a piece of paper somewhere detailing how you fall short, the sins that you have. So does Jesus give you the exact amount of grace needed to cover those sins? The answer is no all right look at the next verse how does God pour out his grace on us he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight so this Greek word lavished has a very basic meaning have you ever watched a three-year-old pour a glass of orange juice okay you take a cup and we're just assuming they make contact with the cup okay I've seen it happen where it doesn't make contact. We're going to use the precision. They've finally gotten enough stamina or what do you call it, dexterity, to to pour it into the cup. Except what happens? Your cup holds an exact quantity of fluid, right? That's the volume, the measurement and volume. It holds an exact amount. How does a toddler put orange juice in the cup? So we got got a cup. Let's just say that cup holds eight ounces. And we have a 32-ounce jug of orange juice. They're going to attempt to put around 28, 29 ounces into the eight ounce cup, right? Or have you seen this with a bowl of cereal and a jug of milk? They need to make smaller versions of milk, you know, just for kids to do this. I guess that's with little tear carton ones, because they go to pour, and by the time they get in this action, you only have to count to half misses. It's like one meh, and then you've already filled your, your whole bowl full of milk, plus it's draining onto the floor, and then they dump it back over. And We would use the Greek word here, lavish. That's how God pours out his grace on you. So think about how much grace you need. It's that little eight-ounce cup. And how much grace does God give you? Toddler. Toddler levels, all right. So actually, this concept of lavish is usually used in a negative context. Only a fool would live lavishly. We use the word that way, don't we? Lavish living, we mean you've gone you've gone to excess, you've gone too far, you've, you've done way more than was necessary in the dispensation of grace. So God pours out a grace on us that from our vantage point, if you compare our unworthiness to his graciousness, there's an absolute disconnect, right? Between God's grace and my measure of sin, there's no way it makes sense for God to love me in that way. That's ridiculous. Now, we could call it reckless. A lot of people get upset if we use that word. But if we say there's a disconnect between God's love and our undeservedness, we're just echoing Scripture, okay? We do not deserve the grace and mercy and love that has been poured out on us. The biblical word is lavish. Excessive grace is poured out on you in Christ. So we take that doctrine of God's love, and it's very easy for us to receive that love and then take a false step next. And this is what Malachi is about today. How do we respond? How do we preach? How do we think about God's lavish love, his lavish grace in a biblically, biblical, biblically acceptable manner? So let's dive into Malachi, and you'll see the question right out of the gate that's going on. So Malachi chapter 2, we're going to pick up in verse 17. So how do we deal with God's love in a biblically accurate sort of way? So we're going to pick up in verse 17 and walk through chapter 3, verse 5. So just nerdy side note for those who care. We added the chapters and verse numbers. They're not from the Lord. And so every now and then you'll see a chapter and verse divided in a weird way. That's not inspired. It just happens to be that way. So our section of Scripture starts in verse 17, but goes through um, chapter 3, verse 5. So here's how it starts off. You have wearied the Lord with your words. So another accusation from God against his people. So we've seen several accusations so far. He accused them for their poor sacrifices. He accused the priest for the way they were doing sacrifices. He's accused the people of Israel for intermarrying with other um, women of other religions. He's accused them of divorcing the wife of their youth. And now he's accusing them of speaking falsely. God is getting sick and tired of your words. That's what Malachi, the messenger, is saying, You have wearied the Lord with your words. But you say, How have we wearied him? So, straightforward question How is it that our words have wearied God? Because God's supposed to be unchanging. How did he get tired of listening to what you had to say? Malachi is going to give us the answer. By saying, Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Let me rephrase that. You've wearied the Lord because you say God loves everyone the same. That's what that passage said. That everyone, these people who do evil, in God's sight, he delights in them? Saying God delights in bad people wearies the Lord. Now doesn't it feel like, ho oh, oh, ho? Oh. Didn't we just say that there's a radical disconnect between the measure of God's love and our undeservedness, the measure of our sin? He loves those sorts of people. Yet what's gotten God's people in trouble is that they have said, man, God delights in people who do evil. And they have this other thing, or by asking Where is the God of justice? Now, this is a cynical question because they look around and they see, well, there's all these evildoers, and God blesses them. Have you ever looked around the world and seen that? There's people doing evil all day long. Bad things don't happen to them, but what do we say instead? Bad things happen to, to me, a good person. Well, there's an error in your statement already, right? Because what's the difference between you and the other person? (laughs) At best, grace, right? So you're the evildoer as well. So two versions of the same concept is that God doesn't care how you're acting. He loves you anyway. That's the setup. So if you feel the tension, you're hearing it correctly, that God is angry with them for saying he likes people who are sinners. What does the Bible tell us about God and sinners? Well, in the New Testament, we get God demonstrated his love for us while we were yet sinners. Yet in the Old Testament, we see in the Psalms that God hates people who sin. We see both concepts in Scripture. God's attitude towards sin is... Harsh. Does God ever pour out wrath on people because of their sin in the Old Testament? What did God do to Egypt? He decimated it. And then he saved those people. He led them across the water. They get to the other side. We're talking about the Hebrews and Exodus. They get across the Red Sea, and they're worshiping the Lord. And every time some of them do something stupid, what happens to them? They die. God pours out wrath upon them consumes them, spreads disease among them. But then we say, whoa, whoa, whoa. But God's not like that in the New Testament. Does God ever pour out wrath in the New Testament? Well, let's just start with Jesus. He goes into the temple, and he sees people buying and selling in the court where there ought not be commerce, and what does he do? He flips tables, makes a whip, drives them out. Well, that's not as bad as killing them. Well, let's fast forward a little bit. We get to Ananias and Sapphira. They lie to the Holy Spirit. What does God do to them? kills them but that's the only example in the new testament right no because then we read about the lord's supper in corinth and paul says there's people in your church who have died who are currently sick and about to die for no other reason than they're doing the lord's supper wrong god hasn't changed in the new testament in fact we want to be honest there's way more wrath in the new testament than there is in the old you get to the book of revelation And the bulk of that book is God doing what? Here's his big cup of wrath, and he's pouring it out like Baskin-Robbins in every flavor he's got. He's pouring it out until he pours it all out fully. God hates sin, and he is going to destroy sinners. That's a biblical concept, old and new. And so we have wearied the Lord By saying God just loves everybody. We should just have this message of love. Malachi says we've wearied the Lord by this statement. Let's keep going, because that's certainly not where the passage ends. Chapter 3, verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger. Now, if you're a student of the New Testament, you know this has been quoted in the New Testament as a reference to who? John the Baptist. I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. So they just ask that question, where is the God of justice? Well, the answer is going to be, oh, he's coming. You may not see him right now, but he is coming. Behold, I send my messenger. He will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant, in whom you delight, which is probably sarcastic, behold... He is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So if your message is God is love, and God is good, and God loves everybody in spite of anything they've done, then the idea that God is coming, is that good news or bad news? Well, that would be good news. Man, Jesus, who accepts and affirms everyone, regardless of what you're doing, he's coming, and we're all going to have a, a love Fest? I don't know. What do you want to call that? Jesus is going to show up? Hippie Jesus is going to show up and be nice and kind and courteous and friendly with everyone on the planet, regardless of who they are and what they do. That's what's coming. They're excited about that. But verse 2. But who can endure the day of His coming? Well, that's not the question you asked if God just loves everybody and delights in everybody. What's the idea here? Who can withstand When he appears, for he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Now, that is good news, is it not? He's not coming to destroy them, but rather to do what to them? to clean them up, to purify them. There's this interesting tension in the passage. Now, we read it from the New Testament perspective. So we understand the tension. God is going to show up both as refiner's fire and he's going to show up as judge who's here to destroy. Now, when Jesus comes, we see half of that get settled, right? What did Jesus do when he came? He came to do battle. Remember, we went all through Matthew with this, not with the world, not with the circumstances, not with the oppression that God's people have had, but He came to do battle with something else in particular. And what was that thing Jesus came to do battle with? Sin. He came to correct us in our heart. And so, if you're in the outline, the first thing here is the God of justice refines His people with the blood of His Son. That is why Jesus came, is to take His people, and you remember what we read in Ephesians, to make them holy. And blameless to change who they are. The gospel message is not that God loves sinners. It's that God redeems sinners. There's a big difference. Here's our concept of the gospel in American Christianity. If you pray the sinner's prayer, if you ask for God's forgiveness, you get to go to heaven. It's not in the Bible. That's not the biblical concept. The biblical concept is God gives you an opportunity to follow Him, to repent, to change sides. You get the opportunity to obey, you get the opportunity to follow, you get the opportunity to honor the Lord. This passage will ultimately call it fear. The Lord. It's not that I get to pray some prayer, and since God loves me, I get grace, and everything's fine. It's that, no, God loves me, and that's why I get to follow him. I get to be changed. I get to be transformed. I get to have grace. In fact, in the New Testament, when we see the word grace, it's usually not a reference to salvation. It's a reference to what comes after. Paul says, this was the grace given to me that I get to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. How did he use the word grace? His role in the kingdom. Jesus came not to just give us forgiveness so that we could go to heaven, but to be the refining fire that transfers us from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of his son, that transforms us from people of sin to people of Christ to make us Christ-like. That is why he has come. Verse 4, then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord, as in the old days of old, as in the former years. What's his goal here? Is it just to forgive them? That's part of the puzzle. But what's God creating in them? People who offer good offerings. Well, that's us in the New Testament. We offer good offerings. This is what God is doing with us. He's transforming us. Verse 5, then... I will draw near to you for judgment. So you see the sequence. It's the way it's happened. Jesus came as your fire. How's he coming back? In judgment. This is the order. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be swift, a swift witness against, and he's going to give a list of reasons he's going to pour out judgment. Number one, sorcerers. Number two, against Adulterers, Three, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner. And do not fear me, says the Lord. So in basically every one of these scenarios, the accusation, we could say their problem so far in Israel has been idolatry. But in this case, he applies every one of these scenarios horizontally. Remember, this is what we saw last week with with divorce. What's the issue with divorce? If God loves us in such a way, then we ought to love in that way. If God has loved us as his people and called us to be holy, to be different, then our relationships with the world ought to reflect that. So we ought not commit adultery. We ought not oppress the poor, those who are fatherless, the widow, or the sojourner. Otherwise, we are not showing that we fear the name of the Lord. What does fear have to do with it? We like to reinterpret the word fear to make it sound a little bit nicer. Say that, well, what we mean by fear is just respect. God commands our respect. But every time God shows up in person in the Bible and people fear him, Does it look like respect or does it look like fear? Looks like fear. Looks like absolute petrified terror before the Almighty God. This is what Malachi is reminding us God is coming back in judgment and he will pour it out on those who are living in sin. We're not in any sense arguing for a works based salvation, it's never. Like that. We never get into the kingdom because we did enough good works, but you're not in the kingdom if you're not doing good works. That's by definition, you're changed. Jesus told us in the Sermon on the Mount, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. In other words, if the blood of Jesus touches you, what's it do according to this passage? It's a refiner's fire does that refiner's fire work yeah so we know something's been through the refiner's fire because what's happened to it it's been purified so if we look at someone today in our very own culture our very own christianity and they say i've had the blood of jesus yet they are completely like the world in every category then what do we know? That they have not received the refining work of the refiner's fire. This is the message of the gospel. It's not different in the New Testament than it was in the old. Jesus is the same today, yesterday, and forever. The message is always the same. God loves us, and that's why He gives us this chance to be redeemed, to transfer from one kingdom to another. The biblical term there is Repent. This is the message of God's love. The crazy part is that he lets us, people like us, do that. But we have wearied the Lord if we say, you know what, God just loves us. Don't worry about sin. Do whatever you want. Live however you want. Or let's act like that's how the gospel works. Malachi says, no, that wearies the Lord. And if that's who you are, you're not a child of God. And today, you have the opportunity, in response to the message of Malachi, the messenger, to repent. Because I can say, all those who repent, God loves you. In spite of everything you have done, his love for you is beyond comprehension, and it's effective. It will do something to you. It will change you in ways that you cannot imagine. This is the overwhelming love of God. It changes who we are. So I don't know if I filled in the blanks there. The God of justice will pour out judgment on those who do not fear His name. So do you fear